0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is
1: Believe. I I was worried when I started this work for like, oh, I love food, I love to to eat. If this becomes my job, will that ruin it for me? Like if 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 food becomes my career, will I lose my passion for for it? And I have found over 10 years that that has not been the case. And in fact, the more I've learned, the more passionate I've become.
0: Here on Hot Takes on a Plate, you get to eavesdrop on the ultimate food fights as I debate my culinary world friends and other eating enthusiasts in their areas of expertise. And today, this episode is the ultimate challenge. I'm skipping to the last level of the video game, taking on the very best there is, a first ballot food hot take Hall of Famer. I would argue he's the most successful food podcaster there has ever been. Dan Pashman, host and creator of The Sporkful, joins me here on Hot Takes on a Plate on the Believe Podcast Network. And, Dan, I- I'm buttering you up.
1: I need you yeah, to be that complacent. Was, I need I'm, you to be I,
0: complacent I, if uh, I'm going to have a shot today.
1: <laughs> I'm pulling some quotes from that intro to put on my website. That was great. Thank you, Rob.
0: <laughs> Listen, I want to go back and dissect some of your hottest food takes from over the years. But before we get to those hot takes, I wanted you on because The Sporkful is celebrating 10 years years on the air, which in this business is an eternity. What did the food podcasting landscape and and podcasting landscape in general look like 10 years ago? Because I know for me, I wasn't even listening to podcasts 10 years ago.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it, um, you know, my dream was always to host my own radio show. So I started in the world of radio back before podcasting. And then long story short, I I kept getting jobs working on shows or at networks where I thought like, this is great. I'm going to work my way up here. Eventually I get my own show in 10 years. And then, you know, recessions, internet, technology, tumultuousness everywhere. Just, I worked on six, I got laid off from six jobs in eight years. And around this time, podcasting was starting to pick up and friends of mine were saying, you know, in radio, I think people who worked in radio were kind of maybe a little bit ahead of looking at podcasting and were like, hey, you should start a podcast. And I figured, well, if I own my own podcast, at least no one can cancel it but me. (laughs) Um, and here I am 10 years later, I still haven't canceled myself. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was, it was one of the one of the sort of uh, kind of amusing things about COVID times, one of the few amusing things about it is that we're all back to making podcasts. I mean, I'm making my podcast in my basement, which is kind of how it all began. Um, you know, I started off making the podcast in my living room. It was a side project. I mean, you, you, it was almost impossible to make a living doing a podcast 10 years ago, unless you were majorly you know, famous to begin with. Um, or I mean, like maybe if you were a radio show and then you also distributed by podcast. Um, so like, you know, we didn't make any I didn't make any money. Um it was a side project, a passion project for a couple of years. I mean, the, there were like three companies that even advertised on podcasts, like stamps.com, Audible, and I think that might have been it. Um and, you know, so so the the quality bar was was lower. <laughs> Um, back then you had to download, but you had to actually go and sync, you had to download the podcast like to, uh, this was before you had, you had to like sync your phone or your, or your iPod to pick up your podcast They didn't just automatically appear there. You had to be but tech savvy. You had to be tech savvy and you had to think like, I'm, I'm leaving the house. I need to download the episodes before I go. So it was, there was a lot more work involved. Um, so there was no real business and the technology was pretty poor, um, but in some ways it was also kind of the wild west. I mean, like I, I, I had, I had worked with Mark Marin at one of my radio jobs. And so when I was 10 episodes into the sporkful in the very first year, I emailed Mark and said, Hey, will you come on my show? So he was like my first celebrity guest and it's a good one um, to have. Yeah. And this, and he was like six months into WTF and, um, what was, what was funny in retrospect was, so I, 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 I taped with Marin. the episodes coming out back then, if you wanted to get featured, you know, nowadays, if you want to get your podcast featured in the Apple podcast store, the carousel, like there are whole PR agencies that are like lobbying for weeks or months to get podcasts featured in this, in these slots. Back then you just emailed a guy named Steve. So I emailed Steve And said hey that guy Marin you know he's got that podcast people are Noticing now he's going to be on my show And he was like okay cool send me the art We'll feature you and that's how I got my first Apple podcast feature um, Do you still have Steve's
0: so, email address? Because if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind
1: reaching out to him. I'll, I'll take a look, but I got to tell you, it's not, it doesn't work the way it used to, Rob. <laughs> no, it's changed. It's, and
0: you know, that's another thing I think about with your show is that, you you know, when you started, like you said, it was the wild, wild west. I'm imagining not as much competition now Everybody has a podcast, every celebrity, every it's 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 blogging what blogging was, you know, 15 years ago. Anyone can do it. Anyone can put it out there. It doesn't require any. All you need is a microphone and a little bit of know-how and uh, wanting to do it. Like, how do you I mean, how do you compete with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the great double edged sword of podcasting is that anyone can do it. And there, there are some wonderful things about that because it's opened up opportunities for people who in the past would have had to wait for a gatekeeper, uh, a typically like middle-aged white man who would be running the radio station to give you permission, to give you a show, to give you a time slot. And now um, people don't have to wait for that anymore. They can just go make their show. And that's how I was able to make a show too. So that's very exciting. The flip side is you have a lot of people who are just kind of like throwing noise out there who aren't putting a ton of work into what they do. Um, and it makes it harder to get attention on things. Um, on the other hand, the, the other thing is just like, like there are so many talented people out there. Yes. It makes me, it, may, it, it, it makes me feel sad for prior generations who, who I'm sure how many talented creative people were there who wanted to make great audio, who just never got a chance and ended up leaving the industry or went their whole career's, in frustration, um, who are now making, you know, and that now the children and grandchildren of those people are making incredible things. And it's definitely made me get better. Like, you know, it does, <laughs> uh, you know, you you do see the positive effects of competition on the quality because like I started looking around, you know, when Serial came out and the podcasting boom hit and, and Gimlet was founded. And like the, the, you know, the seminal podcasting companies, maybe you're talking five years ago. Um, I looked around and I was like, I gotta get better. You know, my show has to get better. I have to connect with people on a deeper level. The show has to be more personal. It has to be more meaningful and thoughtful. You know, like the first few years of the show were really just like, let's argue about like, at what point does a grilled cheese cease to be a grilled cheese? Like if you add three things to it, if you put tomatoes and bacon, you know? And like, that was fun for a couple of years. But at a certain point I was like, this has to get better in every way if it's going to continue to be a show that anyone wants to listen to.
0: And I've noticed that evolution. You know, I was not, like I said, I wasn't listening to podcasts 10 years ago. So I, I only know based on things I've heard you say or other people say what your show was like 10 years ago. I know you did a lot of stuff like kind of like this, like food hot takes and, and whatnot, um, and, and diving into the minutiae. And like you said, the show evolved and part of that was fueled by competition. But was there anything else that fueled that? Because now I think your your shows that are the best shows, I mean, you do a variety of of shows. You know, you do shows that are just straight interviews with great guests. But I really love the deep dives that you do. You know, you will do these episodes where you take people on a journey. It's it's true storytelling and it's very creative storytelling. It's well researched storytelling. How did you get to that point?
1: Um. Yeah. I mean, so so part of it was the pressure of feeling like our show needs to get better. But part of it was also like. You know, I mean, how 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 many years can you spend debating the ideal surface area to volume ratio of French fries? <laughs> um, you know, I, I and I still love those those discussions once in a while, but the first few years, that's all the show was. And that was fun for a few years, but after a couple hundred episodes of that, I also needed a new creative direction. So, and so I, it's not I, just
0: the audience that you're playing to. You're playing to yourself. You have to keep yourself engaged.
1: Oh, 100%. I mean, look, you know, I mean, look, Rob, you've made a lot of great shows. Like, you know... I don't, you know, when I was at NPR, before I started the Sporkful, there was a big thing about like, there was this idea from executives that you didn't want what they called producer driven radio. And they meant that as like, you shouldn't be making the show for yourself. And that I do understand. You don't make the show for yourself. You make it for others. But you need to be excited about what you're making. Yes. If you are not passionate about what you're making, then (laughs) listeners are not going to be passionate. Oh, they feel it. They feel it. Right. And by the flip side, like, you know, know, and and it's just about caring about what you do. Like you want to make something great, you have to love it. Like you're not going to have the drive to to spend an extra hour fine-tuning something and making it better if you don't really like it. So, you know, and I'm just the kind of person, like I – I've always known since I was pretty young, like I'm not the kind of person who can like, look, some people are just like, I have a job, I go to my job, I do it, I don't love it, but it's fine. It pays the bills. It allows me to support my family. And then I have fun on the nights and weekends. That's just not me. Like I'm the kind of person that can't, like I need to be excited about the things I'm working on. Me too, it's
0: the worst, man. It's the worst.
1: (laughs) Right, right. And, and, and 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 I wanna be surrounded by people who feel the same way. You know, I've worked at certain radio outlets over the years. Um, where, you know, I wanted to be excited about the show I was working on. I wanted to try to make it better, but the people around me didn't. And the people around me didn't seem to care much about quality. And that's very demoralizing. Yes. Um, You know, part of the reason why I think our show is still good over the course of every 10 years is that it changes and evolves. And we're always trying new things. Like in our ninth year, we did like a game show episode. Um, You know, we did an episode all about music and food and and like songs about, It was all about songs about jelly. It was kind of random. Well, food Um, intersects with everything, right? Like that's the beauty of food. hundred percent. hundred percent. And and I will
0: say as a a talent, you know, I think one of the keys, one of the things you hit on is is for people to to stay with you, to really enjoy what you're doing as a host. You have to be authentic. And I kind of hate that word to an extent, but for lack of a better term, you know, you have to, people have to believe you're real. And, and if you're doing content that you think the audience likes, but you're not super into it, you're not super enthused people, there's no authenticity there, you know, but, yeah. but so even though you're, what you're saying is like, you'll do episodes that, you know, scratch an itch that that you're interested in and hope the audience likes it by doing that, you're showing your enthusiasm. You're showing your authenticity, who you are. And, you know, that's a little bit risky because now will people like who you are? Will people be into that? But also, they will they know a fraud when they see a fraud.
1: Right. Well, I think that's 100% right. And it's especially true in audio. I mean, to me, audio is kind of the most honest medium. Um, no offense. I know that you're uh, a, a great television producer and host, Rob. I love um, this medium. Like, like,
0: look, I got into TV, but this is so much fun. I honestly, I've noticed doing this podcast, I see a different level of enthusiasm from myself in my own performance than I did in TV because doing the same thing over and over will wear you down, which is why it's amazing. You've done the sporkful for 10 years and you don't sound worn down by it. You don't sound bored.
1: I'm definitely not bored. No, there are weeks where I feel worn down just because, you know, we do a show every week all year. And, And most, most podcasts that produce shows of the level of production value of our show don't come out every single week for the whole year. They work in seasons or they're every other week. Um, so there are weeks that it feels a little bit grueling, but I still, I still get really excited about a good idea, you know? Um, You know, like for our 10th anniversary, uh, we we went to listeners and said, you know, what are the episodes you want us to replay with updates? You know, pick three, we had a vote. And and the number one vote getter that listeners wanted us to re-air with an all new update was this one called Searching for the Aleppo Sandwich. That was a really good one. Thank you. And that that was one we worked on for like two years. You know, on the sort of back burner while producing shows every week, um, it was all about this sandwich shop in Aleppo in Syria that I had heard about, you know, but I... Uh, what we, we, we see, I, I was like very intrigued by it. A friend mentioned it to me. He told me a story about it, having been there many years ago. And I was just like, I want to know what, I want to know everything about this sandwich shop. Like what made it special? Why did locals love it? And then most importantly, like what happened to it? Is it still there? Are the owners alive or dead? And like what, you know, and then it sort of, as I learned more about it and started researching and reporting on it, it's the the shop sort of became like a stand in for all of Aleppo like if, like if this place can survive then Aleppo can survive um so we did an update on that story but like those kinds of things like if you can't get into that story then you're hopeless you know no absolutely
0: <laughs> and a great story great story and you know you and i i feel like we we come from similar backgrounds in that we were broadcasters first we were food enthusiasts but we were not chefs we were not food experts. I'm going to, when we started our journeys, you know, I, I had my TV show restaurant Hunter for about nine years and it started, a, you know, probably a few months after you launched the Sporkful. And one thing from my journey doing restaurant Hunter is the amount I learned about food and I learned how much I didn't know about food. And I'm curious for you in these 10 years, like, what have you learned about food? What are like a couple of the biggest lessons that you've learned about food that like 10 years ago, just you couldn't even
1: imagine. No, man. I mean, I don't even know where to begin. I I, I still feel like an outsider in the world of food media. And I think you're right. That's something you and I have in common. Like I'm not a chef. I'm maybe an above average home cook, but like, you know, not the greatest. Um, and I'm not, I I don't even care that I mean compared like, yes, I care more about food and cooking than maybe the average person, but I don't care as much as the average person in the world of food. Um, I care more now. You know, it's it's funny like I I was worried when I started this work for like, oh, I love food. I love to, I love to eat. If this becomes my job, will that ruin it for me? Like if if food becomes my career, will I lose my passion for for it? And I have found over 10 years that, that has not been the case. And in fact, the more I've learned, the more passionate I've become. I still think I have a lot to learn. Um the things that I've learned, I mean, You know, my, my palate has changed radically. Like I eat, so I was not the most adventurous eater. I mean, when this podcast started, I didn't, I mean, 10 years ago, I didn't like mustard. I didn't like, (laughs) (laughs) I've come around to mustard. I didn't like spicy foods. There was an episode we did like the one or two years in where, where this 11 year old who liked spicy food tried to teach me how to eat spicy food. Um, now I like have a drawer full of hot sauces. Um, you know, I eat a much wider range of different ingredients and, and and some of that, I think, has just been my own natural personality of like, I always like to try new things. So, so I'm sure some of that would have happened if I didn't host a food podcast, but hosting a food podcast definitely propelled me. It just, it just exposed me to different foods, different people, different cuisines. Um, so that's definitely something that's changed for me. And I think I've gained a much deeper understanding of the way in which food is a stand in for identity. Yes. So while I'm still not the most interested in food and ingredients, and I don't give a sh- what chef is hot right now, um, but I I I see foods and dishes, and when I see things on social media or on TV, I, I much more quickly understand like how, how people are represented through these foods and what the pros and cons of that, or the potential opportunities and problems are with that. Um, and that has made the experience that that has made the world of food richer for me.
0: And I think being a little bit of an outsider with a curious mind helps you relate to an audience because not everybody who listens to the sporkful is going to be a chef or a food media person. It's going to be people like you say it's not just for foodies, it's for eaters. You know, that's that's your tagline and it's true and and so I think somebody who is learning along with the audience can explain something sometimes better than somebody who takes something that they know for granted. And maybe their, their opinion on something is so formed that they can't sort of get out of their head and see another side to something.
1: No, for sure. And, and I still, you know, it it always surprised, like people in the world of food, listen to the full, but I always sort of feel surprised when I find out that they do. Um, no, in in my head, I I am always assuming that the listener is not, a chef they don't work in the world of food they aren't following all the hottest restaurants like they love to eat and they're kind of interested in these things maybe they're a little more interested in food than the average person but you know like like to me you know it's funny um my sister-in-law said to me like a year ago she's like what are you gonna do next like what's the next chapter and she said maybe you should like go to culinary school like maybe you should like maybe you should become like learn to kind of like learn some chef stuff and I was like no, I don't ever want to like, I kind of, I mean, I, you know, I'm never going to, uh, extol the virtues of ignorance, but like my perspective is of a person who has, doesn't have the, that experience. And so, um, you know, I, I don't want to get buried in that kind of in that world. And you're of course playing
0: to a bigger audience base if you're not playing to, you know, the very, very micro audience of expert, expert food people. So it makes sure, so much actually, sense as a
1: broadcaster. Right. Yes. It's Everybody eats. Having, right. It's about having a broader audience. But one of the interesting things that I've learned, Rob, getting back to your earlier previous question, is is that like, um, for the first like four or five years of the Sporkful, I never interviewed a single chef. I refused to interview chefs because I was like, chefs are pretentious. They're fancy. This show is for eaters. I'm not a chef. I don't care about chefs. I hate chef worship and like the obsession with chefs and fancy restaurants. And then. I finally interviewed my first chef who was Tyler Cord, who does number seven, number seven sub shop. And I wanted to have him on because he wrote a whole cookbook about broccoli and he was famous for a broccoli sub. And that all seemed so weird and silly that I was like, "All right, (laughs) this guy seems like my style. You know Um, what I learned, what I have learned over time is that actually a lot of chefs, while they have a fancy and pretentious side, also many of them are very down to earth. A lot of them love very simple, basic foods. Absolutely. Um, And a lot of them, have the same obsession with the kind of tiniest details of the eating experience that I have. And they have the same interest in food as culture and food as a stand-in for identity that I have. There are people who have thought very deeply about food, um, by nature of their work. So I've warmed up a lot to having chefs on and turned out, and I've learned that they're, you know, they're not so bad after all. In fact, a lot of them are pretty sharp folks. Um, and people in the world of food aren't as pretentious as I thought uh, they might be. And um, so we've 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 learned to get along and meet in the middle. But I still I still don't think of myself as like part of that crowd. Well, speaking of, of the minutiae, usually
0: here on Hot Takes on a Plate, I would throw hot food takes at my guests, and their job would be to tell me I'm right or tell me I'm wrong and why. But today, I thought we could do a little of the reverse. Now, since then, you've built your reputation on having some of – the, the most seriously hot food takes out there. I want to go down memory lane, revisit some of your most memorable hot takes. All right. And I'll tell you why you're right or wrong. Ready? Okay. All right. All, All right. right.
1: We'll f- turn on the tables
0: here. Yes. And I might throw a few at you as well, of course, but right. first one, Bring it on. you have staked your reputation on this
1: idea that a hot dog is a sandwich. Explain. Well, and you and I both live in the state of New York, Rob, where, as you know, the New York state has officially said that a hot dog counts as a sandwich. This was recently an issue with COVID. The governor announced he was going to uh, uh, enforce the law that says that bars must serve food and that a bag of chips doesn't count. It must be a sandwich and a hot dog is a sandwich or a sandwich is the minimum and a hot dog is a sandwich. Um, Yes, I believe a hot dog is a sandwich. I'm actually sort of a strict constructionist um, when it comes to uh, sandwiches. I feel like we must look to the Earl of Sandwich's original intent. And his original intent, Rob, was to be able to pick up a piece of food without the fillings touching his hands and to eat it without the fillings all falling out. And, and, and so I think there are two criteria um you must you know, for a sandwich to be a sandwich you must be able to pick it pick up this food okay without your hands touching the filling substantially i mean if a fingertip touches something you know whatever and you must be able to eat it without your hands having to touch the sandwich in order to be able to eat it again if the sandwich falls apart while you're eating it that may mean it's a poorly constructed sandwich but it still was built to be a sandwich the, the, so the first rule is is, is is that one? Um, you know, you must have fillings, and then something must be sandwiched. Okay, so you must have fillings between two other things. They it does not have to be bread. Okay, so let's 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 challenge this. Is a, is a taco a sandwich? No, because this is and so. But what, the, wait,
0: wait, wait, wait! It's fillings. It, it's it, you can hold it with your hand. It's it's between something, Dan. I
1: understand, but but he, he, here here's where the dividing line because there are other foods that you can eat with your hands that are not sandwiches. It's in a bread like thing. Well, but here's where I draw the line. You it, like a meat a meatball sub, okay, is typically served in a like on a on a sandwich bread that is cut but not severed completely. It's sort of in a V shape, yes. correct? But we would all agree that that's a sandwich. Yes. Okay. A hot dog bun is similar to a V shape like sub roll, okay? Now I think that the dividing line between a, a V-shaped bread or or um, carrying mechanism, where it is a sandwich, and versus where it isn't, as in a taco, is if you were to sever the hinge, would it hold together? Now you could take a hot dog and you could sever the hinge. And you could turn that hot dog right. bun into two pieces so, of bread, so and it then, would still it so would still then, basically be a hot dog.
0: All right. So then, is a euro a sandwich? Sever-
1: is a euro a sandwich? No, no, but because uh, that uh, a euro is a wrap. Okay, so wraps are not sandwiches you're saying. Correct. Wraps are not sa- there's there are there's really like in all of these kinds of like typically dough. it's not uh, dough around something. There are sandwiches, there are wraps so, and so there are sa- dumplings. Okay, so you so
0: you're saying that th- it has to be something you can hold like a taco, like yep. a euro. Yep. but it has to have a hinge of some sort to the to the carb. No, it doesn't have to have a hinge. What
1: I'm saying it must have two discrete separate items that are sandwiching the fillings
0: but but with the hot dog you never separate that hinge it almost plays like one it plays like 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 a gyro like a pita it plays like a and look it look with a gyro uh, with a pita you can also cut it open and fill the gyro you don't have to wrap it so if you fill the pita that is two separate things
1: but you're not gonna. But when you're, you're filling a pita, that that's a pouch. You're making a pouch. You're not. You're oh, not but you're, no, you're okay. not gonna take a pita and fully separate it into two discs.
0: Is a burger a sandwich? Yes. Is a lobster roll a sandwich?
1: Um, by it my has hot to dog, be. yeah. By my logic, you boxed hot dog, yourself in, Dan. No, I, I'll go with it. A po boy, a po boy. I mean, is a po boy a sandwich? Yes, a po boy is a
0: sandwich. What about a bow bun?
1: Ooh. Well, it kind of has to be by your definition. Probably, yeah, because you if you sever it, you know, like it's typically one one piece. That that's that may be the most the, the most borderline is a bow or or um, a quesadilla. Those are the areas where I think you you know, even I, you know, it kinda depends on which way the I wind mean, is blowing. Is for is me. pizza an open faced sandwich? Like what <laughs> are open faced well, sandwiches sandwiches in general? Open no, open 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 face. That whole term is a misnomer.
0: That that like okay. avocado toast, or or what about that uh, How I don't know how to pronounce it. The 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 Danish thing. Schmorg, Schmer, I, 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 I I just go schmorkyburger. You know what I'm talking about? The there's <laughs> I don't this know Danish that one. this Danish flat. It's very famous. These Danish oh, they call them open face sandwiches. But they're like smorrebrod, smorrebr. I can't pronounce it. It's like the I know. I've asked a hundred times. It just sounds like <laughs> the Swedish <sweetest> chef talking, <laughs> right? But,
1: yeah. But anyway, um, I, I don't know that dish. I I do not. I th- open face sandwiches are not sandwiches. I believe they should be called bread sundays. Bread sundays. Okay. Well, let me ask
0: you this, because here's my thing about this this debate. I'm I I don't really have a strong feeling on the hot dog as a sandwich. But my thing is the devil's advocate thing that I will play is that. There is a difference between perception and reality. So, with a hot dog, you may technically be right, but just like a burger, nobody considers it a sandwich. You know what I mean? Like, and so that's my thing is like, if people don't consider it a sandwich, is it really a sandwich?
1: Yeah. I understand that language is alive and it changes and, and words are constructs. There's things that are made up by human beings. So words mean whatever the majority of people agree that they mean.
0: So hot dog's not um, a sandwich, I win.
1: All right, next one. <laughs> well, there's a sizable portion of the population, perhaps not a majority, but a sizable portion that believes they're a sandwich. New York state and other states have ruled that they're a sandwich. Um, and also, I will have you know that I, in my research on this subject, if you look back at some of the very earliest mentions of hot dogs back when they were being popularized in Coney Island, you know, over a hundred years ago, um, uh, they were referred to as hot dog sandwiches and there are, there's newspaper, there's records okay. to, to, to show Going back that. in time. So sometimes what happens, Rob, is that language just gets shortened. You know, it's no longer Federal Express, it's just FedEx. Um, and so... You know, it was called a hot dog sandwich. Everyone agreed that it was a sandwich. And then over time, people just nicknamed it a hot dog. And then this debate started up, you know, but we, if you're going to say that a meatball sub is a sandwich, which I think we all agree that it is, then anything on a V-shaped or hinged bread must be considered a sandwich. That means lobster rolls, po' boys, clam rolls, and yes, hot dogs. All right. Let me throw you, throw at you my hottest
0: hot dog take that I have. Okay. Your hot hot dog take? Yes. Ketchup is great on a hot dog. I, I, I'm so tired of this whole foodie that, elitist, yeah, you know, no, the, the worst, as much 100%. as I love the gr- late great Anthony Bourdain, like his whole thing about shaming people for ketchup on a hot dog. I My dream was always to meet him. And the first thing I was going to say to him is I like ketchup on a hot dog. It makes sense. It's it's you know, it's a little sweet. It's a little sour. It's it's tangy. It's acidic. It, it complements the richness and the saltiness of the beef and its childhood memories.
1: Dumb. I, I love ketchup. Um, I I, 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 as I said, my my tastes have evolved, and I'm I have less. I, I like it less than I used to because of the sweetness. Um, probably in the last few years, I've switched to a ketchup mustard combo, which I will sort of swirl together on the plate, yeah, and I'll I'll dip my hot dog into that on a per basis. But I will not shame anyone for any condiment, as my, you know. To me, in the, you know, there's objective truth, which is like a hot dog is a sandwich, <laughs> and then there are matters of taste. <laughs> There's an old Latin maxim that I like to quote very often. In fact, we just had new t-shirts made for the sporkful. And I had this put on a t-shirt, non est disputandum." in matters of taste, there can be no disputes. And you can't argue taste. You can argue objective truth, but you can't argue taste. And if people like ketchup on their hot dogs, that's fine. Eat ketchup on your hot dogs. I, I now am a ketchup mustard hybrid person. I think whatever you want on your hot dog is fine, as long as you understand that it's a sandwich. All right, next hot take—that one of your all-time favorite hot takes.
0: You say you shouldn't serve anything—soup, salads, apps, whatever—before Thanksgiving dinner.
1: Yeah, I mean, look—you know, you got to understand that the thanks—the main meal is the star, and the desserts. I mean, you have you have you have your presumably your turkey or whatever meats if you have meats, but whatever it is, like like the, the Thanksgiving dinner that's the star that is why we are here and then after that you take a break and then you eat the desserts which is also why you are here don't put out cashews all right don't <laughs> serve salad or soup uh, like uh, like no apps, you know, nothing no i mean look I, and i i love soup but let's not forget that soup was created soup like soup was sort of created to like take to sort of stretch small amounts of food and fill you up on something that's mostly water, which is fine. Like there are great soups, um, and it has its place, but like at this big bountiful feast, don't eat the dish that was designed to fill you up. So you don't have to eat as much of the good stuff. Okay. So I have questions Um, about this take. Yes. One.
0: And I need these questions answered to see if I can agree with you or not. One, What time is dinner being served in in your idea of don't give people food before dinner? What time is dinner, Thanksgiving dinner being
1: served? Whenever you want. I don't think there's a right or wrong with that. But I do think that the host should clearly communicate to people. When the meal will be served. And then it is up to the attendees to manage their own hunger hmm. so that at the time that they sit okay. down, they are at, they are ready to chow big time. All right. Don't don't give me a, a garden salad at the start of Thanksgiving dinner. Okay, okay.
0: Two, do you when you do Thanksgiving dinner, do you do it like a like a quote unquote restaurant dinner where you're presenting people like course after course, or is it a buffet?
1: It depends on where we are and, and the, the physical setup of the room and the space, but it's either a buffet or, or put everything out on the yes. table. You put everything out. Okay. We, we, and, I mean, it, it, either there's a buffet that you stand up and go get the food yeah. at or everything goes either down or. on the dining table. In other table. words, you,
0: you help yourself. Yes. Okay. And yes. Then the, either the,
1: way, dinner is served, put everything out yes. and it's a free for all. Okay. And the third thing I need to know,
0: when you say serve nothing before dinner, are you including alcohol in that?
1: No, 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 of course. Okay, you thank you. Be, I mean, no. <laughs> okay, serve, thank you, thank I mean, you. You know, for those who drink, right. serve drinks.
0: Okay, okay, um, okay. I can sort of get a, okay, so here's my 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 take on this is, I am with you because one, yes, you have to have alcohol before dinner. Yes, and so we're in agreement <laughs> on that. Yeah. Two, I am I am okay with this if you're doing everything as help yourself. I don't like the idea of I'm going to serve you soup. And I'm gonna serve you salad and you're gonna to have to wait for like it should all be out there. You want if you want soup, it's gotta be out there with the turkey. I agree with that. I do think if you're gonna not give anyone any snacks before Thanksgiving dinner, you have to serve that dinner at like two or three o'clock in the afternoon. I think that is the key.
1: I, I, I think as long as you look, if you wanna serve dinner at six, that's fine. Just tell people in advance we're eating at six. And but if people I'll are coming it, over to hang out at four. But th- but but if you tell me we're eating dinner at six. And and I'm supposed to arrive at four, and we're going to eat at six. Then I will have a snack at two or three o'clock in the afternoon. See, I'm a big fan of come. the two or three o'clock Thanksgiving. I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, look that, and I I, I personally am too. I, I'm just saying I don't think there's a right or wrong time as long as the time is communicated. Yes, and so then it's up to people to make to figure it out for themselves. If you're someone who like like you you don't want to show up at four o'clock absolutely famished if you know that you're not eating till six and then have two drinks on an empty stomach um, oh that's the best time to have two drinks <laughs> <laughs> for me maybe more like one drink on an empty stomach um, but so. But, but so, so like, to me, it's just like, you know, be an adult, manage your buzz and manage your own hunger. And it's up to the host to, to try to be as close as possible to the eating time. I I can get, I can get down with that hot take because I'm like you, you, but I want to disagree with you, Rob. Okay. You don't. You can't put soup out with the other stuff because the problem with soup. I've is never done it, it, it. I've never done it, but I, I don't have a problem
0: if somebody wants to. But,
1: but you well, but you, the problem is that it requires its own vessel. It requires a bowl, which typically takes up, covers yeah, your whole plate. So you, you can't. Can, you can leave it on the stove, and people can walk
0: over to the stove and help themselves. Leave it on a simmer, keep it warm. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, look I know, to me, Thanksgiving should not be too formal. I agree with that. So I'm not too much into keeping order at the table. Let people walk around, help themselves, whatever. I mean, look, my Thanksgiving hot take to me is that turkey is my favorite thing to cook because it's a challenge. Turkey on its own is not that delicious. You have to work to make it delicious, which is what's so fun about it. And... This idea that this, this trend lately of spatchcocking turkeys, I am so against it because part of the challenge is to not sandbag it, to not, you know, chop, you know, split the spine and spread it out. And like, like it's hard to cook a whole turkey well and make it taste good, that big thing. But to me, the most fun about Thanksgiving is that challenge. And also that presentation, nothing looks as good as a whole turkey when it hits the table. So to me, if you want to show off your skills and show me what you got, Make me a beautiful and delicious turkey. Do not spatchcock it. Tell me I'm right. Tell me I'm wrong.
1: I mean, I I, I don't have, I I have mixed feelings about the spatchcocking trend. Um, To to me, so you're taking the whole turkey and you're putting it out for display, but then you got to carve it. You know, like the whole idea of like the presentation of the whole turkey to me is like an overrated moment because the turkey's... It It feeds my ego, Dan. It feeds my ego. (laughs) It's my favorite
0: thing to post on Instagram every year. I make a beautiful bird.
1: Just, just, um, take the Norman Rockwell painting and superimpose your face on the I make a Norman Rockwell in real life. (laughs) I need that moment. I understand. But like, to me, it's not really practical because you take the turkey out and it's whole and it's going to sit for a while and it's going to be carved. But so explain to me then. So are, the side dishes all go onto the table, and they're sitting there. And you put the whole turkey timing on, them, is a and then pain. you bring it back. No timing. Right, so, look, timing's a pain, but you may,
0: You know what? That's part of the
1: challenge. It's a challenge. It's like being on so, Chopped. So w- w- when you present the whole turkey to the table, is everyone already sitting down. I mean, the
0: way my family does it is we don't really like sit. It's more like we use like we usually do it at my parents' house and. What we do is we use their island in their kitchen and we throw everything on the island. And when it's time, you help yourself and you bring your plate back to the table and you eat at the table. It's very cash. You know, there's 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 plenty of wine and it's not part
1: of the fun is to not stress out too much about it. So when you do your big presentation of the whole turkey moment, who's there to cheer for you? The family, they have to, they don't have a choice. <laughs> this is all, of, that's all about me. I would put in that work. I do a, right. I
0: do a killer dry brine. That's another I, thing. Don't give me that wet brine stuff. <laughs> dry, dry brine
1: is the way to go. I'm with you on that. Um, my other thing about the spatchcocking is, um, you know, I think that when, when people cook turkeys, they're too focused on crispy skin. And like the truth is there's very little skin in relation to the amount of meat. Like turkeys have a very low surface area to volume ratio. Yes, s- spreading it flat helps, but still like, then it's got to cool for a while. It's got to sit. And while it's sitting, the steam is coming up through the skin. You're going to lose a lot of that crisp. Um, I just think that like, you shouldn't be focused on the skin. The skin is not, you know, it's just like, that's not where it's at. I make a good everything, skin, <laughs> all of it. It's fantastic, Dan.
0: I'm I so it. proud of my turkey. It's the I one thing it. I've I've worked really hard to master. And I get mad when I eat bad turkey elsewhere. I have picked up on that fact, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, listen, listen, uh, 10 years, amazing run. I know you've got some special stuff in store here for the 10 year anniversary. Uh, I know we're recording this a little bit before the official celebration. It's going to air after. So people are going to have access to things. Tell them what they're
1: going to have access to. Yeah. So the week of September 21st is when all these episodes went up. Uh, I'm speaking in the past tense now, but they're up now is the point. Um, All these episodes are up now. We did Searching for the Aleppo Sandwich, which was our attempt to find out what happened to this beloved sandwich shop in Syria. We went on a quest to find it. So we're re-airing that original episode with a brand new update. And then two more episodes selected by listeners with brand new updates. One is called Katie's Year in Recovery, in which we track uh, a woman in recovery from an eating disorder over the course of a year. We have an update on her. And then one is with Chef Kwame Anwachi of, of Kith and Kin in DC. That one was just from this past year, but... A lot a happened chef. To, to him. Yeah, exactly. See, told you. Now we talk to chefs. He was great. I mean, we that so like it's it, it's a chef. He's a chef, but it's really his whole life story that we tell, and it, he has an incredible story, and he tells it very well in a way that is moving and compelling, and at times hilarious. Um, he's a very good storyteller. So we hear his story, and then we have an update with him because a lot, you know, obviously. COVID has affected the world of restaurants. It's affected him. He's been very active in the activism around trying to get stimulus money for restaurants. Um, so we have that one. Um, so, you know, these are, I I like to think three of our all time best episodes. If you haven't listened to this work full start there, listen to our 10th anniversary episodes, um, with the all new updates and I hope you'll explore more from there.
0: Absolutely. I mean, look, I I think your podcast is fantastic. It's it's one of the pod. I probably started listening to podcasts if I were to guess maybe five years ago. And it's one of the ones that I still find myself going back to five years later, because, look, you know, you you, you discover something, you move on to the next thing, whatever, but you, you keep it interesting. You tell great stories. Dan, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Rob. Thanks so much for having me.
0: And listen, if you are new to Hot Takes on a Plate here on the Believe Podcast Network, make sure to follow us if you are on Apple Podcasts or subscribe to us if you are listening on Spotify. Make sure to rate us. Five stars, of course. Also, feel free to leave a comment. Check out some prior episodes while you're here as well. And if you want to follow me or get in touch with me on social media, I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Rob Patrone TV. Hot Takes on a Plate is part of the Believe Podcast Network. Check them out at BLEAV.com. Until next time, ciao.